Hello and welcome to Future Building. I'm Matthew Aitchison and I'm Professor at Monash University and CEO of Building 4.0 CRC. In this podcast, we take a broad look at buildings and building in contemporary society and what's coming down the pipeline in the future. We'll talk with invited guests and experts in the field, where we'll cover news and trends along with research and developments in the industry. Future Building is proudly sponsored by Building 4.0 CRC. In this episode, I speak with Google's Eric Bakchuk about his views on innovation in the built environment. Eric is a staff designer at Google, where he's developing hardware for the next generation of computing. As a founding member of Alphabet's urban innovation company, Sidewalk Labs, Eric oversaw the architecture, planning and construction innovation program for the Keyside development proposal in Toronto. Previously, Eric has worked in a string of leading innovative organizations, including Foster and Partners, MIT's Sensible City Lab, and Frog Design. He was also a contributor to the Venice Biennale. Eric's designs have straddled the physical and the digital for well over a decade, and I find his work notable in the way that it attempts to humanize the complex social, economic, and biological forces that are shaping our environments. There are a number of gems I'd highlight in our discussion. Eric's ideas on the qualities and attitude required for an innovative outlook, uh, including a healthy irreverence for the status quo. The issue of the impact of COVID, the new importance on the home and therefore how separation in the home can work and how that's important as well. And the idea that sometimes the future can look like the past in terms of buildings that are designed for longevity, like a loose fitting shirt flexible and adaptable over time. I hope you enjoy our interview. I spoke with Eric in September 2020 from his home in San Jose. Uh, Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Excellent. Um, Eric, I want to kick off uh, by asking you about some of the high profile places that you've worked in. Um, they're really well known for long range innovative work and, and innovative approaches. Uh, and as we've heard in the intro, uh, you've been at Sidewalk Labs, uh, Google, uh, Google Special Projects, um, MIT's Sensible City Lab, just to name a few. I'm not sure that all of our listeners would know all of these names, um, but for those who don't, I would say that it appears that the main interest threading through these organizations appears to be uh, building and the built environment. I wanted to ask, do I have that right? Or is there something else at play for you and your engagement with these organizations? Yeah, that seems right. I think the built environment is definitely a common thread through all my work, but it's also a heavy dose of technology, I think, in each of these places I've been a part of. You know, it's kind of the convergence of the physical and the digital in some respects, whether that be, you know, apps and services or digital tools used in making. Um, it's kind of looking at the forefront of what technology and, and the built environment are, are producing together you know, that conversation. And it's, it's a kind of odd thing because uh, in a moment, we'll talk more about some of the ideas you've worked on. Uh, but I also just wanted to flag that many listeners may not have heard of many of the projects you've worked on because of these really hard lines around what's secret and what's in the public domain. Uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, having been on that front line, how have you found that? And do you think that's uh, limited the potential for the things that you've developed? Or is that just part of 
what it is to be in innovation? Yeah, I think that like strict confidentiality has been a part of a lot of my roles. And I think it's sort of the sort of exhilarating maybe at first to know that you're working on these secret skunk work type projects that the world doesn't know about. Um, and so that's maybe frustrating when you think you have something really cool that you want to share the world about, but it's also kind of a relief when things don't go as expected and you don't need to worry about being splashed across the cover of the New York Times or something. So it's definitely a, a double-edged sword to the confidentiality piece of it. But I think it's really just about, um, you know, not letting things sway the public conversation that aren't really ready to be talked about in the way that they want to be presented. You know, it's kind of just creating a safe space to experiment and not being worried about, you know, judgment or, or criticism or things kind of coming in while the sausage is being made, you know, and I think that's kind of uh, an important thing to, to think about in innovation. It's an important space to hold. Yeah, I could see that. Um, and uh, it, it, you, I think you're right. It is very exhilarating. And, and as I'll mention in a moment, I've seen some of the projects and they're, they're very exciting. I guess for people out there who are interested to get into that very um, leading edge innovation space, uh, how, how do you do that? Do you have any hints or tips? Yeah. Um, it, I don't know. I can only speak to my own experience, but for me and for the people I've worked with, it really just starts with, you know, finding an interest in something, you know, like whatever it is, just kind of go to it, gravitate towards it. You'll meet people who are doing interesting work in the space and you'll do great work because you care about it and you're passionate about it. And then the opportunities will kind of flow from there. So at least in my experience, it's been just very stepwise and kind of you know, sort of logical or sequential or one thing led to the next, you know, and it really is about following your passion, interest and doing fun things along the way. Yeah. So I, I also note, Eric, uh, that you're trained as an architect. And I wanted to ask as someone who is working at that forefront of innovation, uh, in particular innovative organizations as well, um, in the built environment space, what skills, in your opinion, does an innovative thinker need most? And is, did you get them from studying architecture or somewhere else? Yeah, I'm not sure there's like specific, you know, skills that I would think about, like whether it's a, you know, being able to draw on CAD or being adept in Photoshop or whatever. I think the skills maybe are less important and what's more important is just like a general attitude and approach to things. I think actually Google is a great example of this where there's a lot of folks with just totally divergent backgrounds, like people with you know, backgrounds in like art history or <laughs> in you know, material science or philosophy or whatever that come and contribute to these projects quite meaningfully. And I think it's not so much the skills they bring to bear as much as the attitude and outlook. And I think it's a lot of it's patience and just understanding that these things take quite a while to get right and take a lot of persistence and, and continued effort. I think you need a curiosity about learning about new things and challenging yourself like for that intellectual rigor. And I think um, you need a healthy dose of irreverence, you know, because anything that's worth doing, you're going to have people out there telling you it's not worth doing or it's impossible or it can't be done. And so you need to kind of take that with a grain of salt and, and recognize that there are inevitably going to be challenges, but then also have the, the self-assuredness and the confidence to take on the task anyway. Yeah, that's great. I suppose I would uh, I would probe just a little deeper on that one and and ask that clearly you've you're you're really adept and you've got a lot of experience working in these multidisciplinary teams. But I guess 
what is it that they ask Eric to do in those teams? And what can you do that perhaps other people with a philosophy background or a, you know, a, a straight up um, programming background, for example, um, couldn't do? Yeah, um, I think it has to do with the spatial thinking. I think that's a big part of it. Um, I do a lot of my work in Rhino and other 3D tools. A lot of it has to do with like tolerances and understanding like 3D space and how to work within the constraints of that. A lot of it is also visualization and storytelling and like getting people involved and excited about a project. And usually that comes from some sort of like 3D model or animation. And so I think those tools for, for the storytelling that they provide, I think are maybe the most impactful ones. Yeah, that's, that's a good segue, I think, to the next thing, which is, as I flagged earlier, <laughs> some people, some listeners may not have had the pleasure of seeing some of your projects. And I thought it would be good to just map out a little bit of a spectrum of some of the things that I've seen um, in fairly low level of detail. I, I'm, I was very impressed by the sort of transport project you did around the elevated bike path, the, the Heliox. Uh, I've seen really interesting projects around new technologies and processes, particularly 3D printing and new material, um, the rad radical flexible use of buildings uh, and, and those initiatives, financial instruments, ownership models, design tools, uh, and also getting in recently into the approvals and permitting uh, aspects of building. Um, and I guess also you've done a lot of work on a range of asset classes, such as housing and the future ideas of around occupation, uh, commercial buildings and what the future of office work is going to be. Uh, I've sort of just done a very quick dump and scan there, but I probably would want to come back to you and ask if there's any issues in there or any of those types of projects that you find particularly pressing right now or that you've earmarked for ongoing or future investigation? Yeah, um, still actively working on some of these things. Specifically, I have a current partnership right now with the city of San Jose working on um, a digital tool for streamlining permitting, specifically for uh, accessory dwelling units or guest houses in people's backyards. There's a huge housing crisis in California with the availability and affordability. And so we're just working really hard to try to streamline uh, the process of delivering new homes and getting them online to people who need them. So that's something that's still ongoing and, and super relevant in the environment I'm currently in. And I know that you've also begun to question whether we'll even need uh, new buildings in the post-COVID era, uh, especially when working from home can be so great. What do you think the long-term impacts of COVID are going to be on cities and workplaces and housing? And I, and I know that that's a really big question, Eric, but I'm just keen to go wide on this with you for, for a second or two. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it's something we're wrestling with a lot at Google. And I think most, you know, any companies or institutions that have significant real estate holdings that were, you know, um, a significant part of their portfolio that they were relying on people to come together and share ideas. They're kind of wondering what they're going to do with all these assets now. Um, so it's very top of mind for us and it is for a lot of other companies too. Um, I don't know, big news lately with the vaccine approvals uh, in the US. So um, there's hope that this thing will start slowing down. But I, I think a return to, you know, the normal as we knew it in say 2019, um, it's probably going to be many, many years and we're going to adapt to more 
you know, social patterns and, and distancing and mask wearing and fewer people on elevators, fewer people on, on floor plans and kind of reconfiguring um, for a more flexible future in probably the next, you know, two, three, five years. So I, that's kind of something I'm seeing on the horizon with people that think about this sort of thing and are working in this space. So it seems yeah. like flexibility and adaptability are really gonna be uh, the name of the game for the coming years. Yeah. And uh, that's an interesting uh, point you make there because um, I, I've heard a range of competing uh, views on this. There's on the one hand, what a company is going to do with all of these uh, effectively stranded assets. And I've heard speculation that the um, offer sharing companies uh, are going to face some kind of crunch. But I guess there's another way to see this is that actually if companies and organizations are no longer interested in possessing that space uh, definitively, perhaps it is an opportunity for some of these um, space sharing organizations. Yeah, it's interesting to think about it, not just within the commercial office space, which it gets a lot of attention because like you said, these are sort of stranded assets or you know, coming into question. Um, but it's also like the home, because like if you're not at work, you're still somewhere and generally it's some sort of residential setting and so what kind of adaptations do we see in the residential market as well, where people are you know, putting in new sheds in their backyard to have an office that's like a separate place from the, where they live, like still kind of craving that separation between work life and home life. And so it's uh, on both sides of the coin, I think you're gonna see some, some move towards innovation. It's hard for me to imagine that we'll go to a completely virtual future of idea sharing and collaboration, I think, the norm was likely to be much more flexible where it's kind of like in-person attendance optional or maybe it becomes more of an occasion rather than the norm for your team to be together. Um, and so we will need these like home setups and we'll be relying on them probably for the foreseeable future. Um, but I think there's still so much that happens in person and the ease of communication uh, when you're co-located is just still really hard for us to replicate with digital tools. I, I hear you very loudly on that as somebody who's been stranded from the rest of their team for the last eight months. Uh, it's been quite challenging and uh, sometimes there's nothing I, I wouldn't give to sit face to face with my colleagues. Um, just to circle back to the permitting and um, the digital uh, streamlining of that process in regards to ancillary dwellings. Have you noticed in the Bay Area uh, a spike in, in, in ancillary dwellings which you would co correlate with COVID? Yeah, I think there has been an uptick in permit applications according to San Jose in the last, call it like, I think the sample was within the last 12 months, so it expands a bit before COVID, but um, yeah, there's definitely been an uptick in that and that's why we're doing all we can to help get information out there to give people the tools they need to make informed decisions and, and move forward the process as, as quickly as possible. That's great. Is is there somewhere that um, the general public can find out more about that process, or is this still under wraps? Yeah, still under wraps, unfortunately. But we will be making an announcement, I think, in the coming months. So yeah, stay tuned for that. I can send you a link when it goes live. I'd appreciate that. Thanks, Harry. Um, before we get into, I guess, what is the the main course of of our discussion today, I just wanted to also point out to our audience that. Um, you know, as an experimenter, you you really don't shy away from doing a bit of DIY in the building space. And you once showed me pictures of a, I think it was a half finished uh, floating house that you were building in San Francisco. And 
if I'm not mistaken, you're, you're working on a barn conversion in Alberta at the moment. Um, can you tell us a little more about those projects, Eric? Yeah, I think it's a healthy thing for designers and architects to make some of the things they talk about all the time. <laughs> like it gives you a healthy dose of reality. And I think it really helps me value craftsmanship and precision in a different way. Like in digital space, it's easy to be very precise. You know, like you have these snap tools in, in CAD or something that's like, make sure one line snaps to the next and they intersect perfectly, you know, where there's no snap tool in the real world. And I think it's, it's a good reminder that this is the same type of challenge that gets scaled up for larger building projects. And that's why I think in many ways, digital technologies haven't affected um, the building trades and the construction industry in the same way they have in other industries because the difficulty of like moving atoms around is, is very challenging. It's not the same as moving bits. And so, uh, you know, construction is still very much about managing humans and people and personalities on the job site, you know, and that's something that isn't really accounted for in digital tools that we use today. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. Um, I want to move now to your engagement at Sidewalk Labs and particularly the Keyside project in Toronto. Now, both you and I have some knowledge of, of that, um, and we should point out to listeners that we're obviously bound by confidentiality agreements. But at the same time, I think it's fair to say that there's been so much press about this project and so many announcements from Sidewalk Labs themselves that there's enough on the public record to allow us to have a decent uh, conversation about it. Um, for those in the audience who are perhaps not as familiar, I just wanted to race through a quick timeline and, and Eric, feel free to jump in and correct me if I've got any of this wrong. But uh, way back in uh, October 2017, uh, the project was kicked off by Sidewalk Labs uh, with some fanfare. There were some plans submitted for this um, uh, harborside area for what was then dubbed uh, a model smart city. Uh, in 2019, a master plan was submitted and then my little timeline ends in May uh, 2020, obviously this year, mm -hmm. uh, when the CEO, Dan Doktorov, um, effectively uh, pulled the plug on the project, uh, citing unprecedented economic uncertainty. Mm -hmm. um, just a quick snapshot so people can visualize what we're actually talking about here. Um, it was uh, a subsite of a much larger harborside area in the first iteration. I think it was some 12 acres, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. Eric. Yeah. Um, the the building systems that were that were uh, drawn up were a kind of conspicuous use of timber and a very much a flexible kit of parts approach. There were 40% of the housing that was to be generated there was earmarked for below market affordable housing purposes. Uh, and I think most notably, uh, uh, a search will pull up several media reports about a, a kind of popular backlash locally in Toronto around uh, data collection and privacy concerns. Uh, firstly, I'd just ask you, is this a fair account and, and what other major parts of that story would you um, uh, uh, highlight for a, a listener that hasn't had any exposure to the Keyside project? Yeah, I think I think you did a good job. A lot of it is kind of detailed in, in the media. So if anyone's interested, there's plenty of articles written up about it. A lot of ink has been spilled on, on this project talking about the more contentious 
parts of it. And I, I think it's a bit of a shame because there was a lot of well-intentioned ideas that I think are really sound you know, in terms of like when you talk about affordability and sustainability and, and the qualities of urban design that were being put forth. And sadly, a lot of it got undermined by the conversation around the, the digital realm and how information was gonna be collected and handled. And to me, that just really underscores the importance of design in, in, in projects like this. You know, like as designers, our role is to advocate for the people who will be using our project. And that, that I think that spans, whether it's an app or a phone or a smart speaker or a smart city, um, it's really our role to employ like deep empathy to truly understand what the wants and the needs and desires are of the folks who will be using this stuff. And that comes from a lot of research and a lot of conversations and a lot of listening and, and actually a lot more listening than designing, you know? And I think that there may have been some shortcomings there in the conversations we were having with the folks in Toronto where maybe we were pushing um, a design agenda without fully you know, investing in, in the listening and, and really hearing what people were wanting in their neighborhood. And so I think we probably could handle a little bit differently. Well, thank you for that ringside um, account there. Can, can I ask, how far along uh, did it actually get? Um, were you know were you ready to pull the trigger pre-COVID, or was was there uh, you know perhaps a one or two year period between when building could or should have started? Were it not for COVID? Yeah, I think um, as Dan you know put in his message that COVID was in many ways the the nail in the coffin. But I think even before that there were a number of warning signs and red flags that had gone up that were suggesting that maybe things weren't weren't quite right and there may not be a, you know a, a viable plan forward that satisfied everyone and so um, yeah that, that's a difficult thing to watch when you spend so much time and energy trying to craft this thing that works on so many levels but then uh, can be undermined by by, by opinion and 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 that's right you know like people should have a say in what goes on in their neighborhoods and I think we just need to do a better job of making their needs heard and folding those ideas and, and concepts more clearly into our plan. Um, so you, you mentioned a couple of things um, you know about obviously innovation but also about sustainability about housing affordability what, what's your view on what was most innovative uh, about the project? Yeah, I really liked um, the work we were doing in pushing the timber agenda. I think there was a lot of potential there, especially Canada and the softwood lumber industry there, a lot of trees <laughs> around there. So it felt like kind of a natural fit for um, replacing what is typically concrete in high-rise construction with more heavy timber and, and CLTs and the like. And as a like an industry kickstart, I was really excited to see what a project of that scale could do uh, for the mass timber industry in Canada, and just like setting, you know, even more global precedents than what are already set by a few Canadian buildings. So just being part of that um, revolution in some ways was, I thought, a really important thing for us to have tried to deliver on. Um. One of the things I personally thought was quite interesting and, and tied in with some of the other Sidewalk Labs initiatives was ideas around uh, the coordination of transportation, public or otherwise, and also the kind of 
fusing of utilities into that whole mix, uh, a kind of, uh, if you were starting from scratch to actually build and design a city, you'd probably do things a little bit differently than accumulating utilities and infrastructure over several hundred years in an incremental way. Uh, I thought that was interesting. Did, did you have any views on that, Eric? Yeah, it is like kind of a, an important opportunity. And I, I think it's a bit of a challenge because, you know, conceptually you can abstract yourself from it and, and look back and say, oh, of course, that's how it should be done, you know? But then you also have to look across the world and recognize that it's very rarely done this way. And even if there are like large scale implementations of this sort of like forward looking infrastructure, they tend to be in pockets or regions or small like subsections of cities or communities and very rarely do they scale up in the in the grandiose uh, utopian vision that maybe their designers had, had initially wanted you know and it's interesting to ask yourself why why that is the case and why it's so hard to gain more widespread traction for these innovations because i feel like every you know decade or two there's a good you know complete overhaul in the way we're thinking about the delivery of these same problems and um, yeah, getting getting traction for one idea or the next is, is really difficult in the infrastructure space. It seems to be a really slow moving kind of world. And in, in some ways, maybe that's a good thing, you know, kind of in the same way that we rely on governments to sort of like temper like spikes and troughs in like the opinion of people or public markets or whatever. Um, in some ways, infrastructure provides that same sort of ballast of keeping things kind of like constant. And in may many ways, maybe that's not a terrible thing. Um, one of the other ideas that I just wanted to pull out of the, the mix there was um, something that was shown, uh, it probably just mentioned uh, on, on some of the proposals I saw on the website, was this concept of radical mixed use. Uh, I found that quite interesting, partly because it, you know, on the face of it, it didn't appear uh, hugely technological in a way. It was uh, obviously much more programmatic programmatic uh, innovation. Is there anything you can share with us beyond what was on the website about that idea and how that would be put into practice? Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. And in some ways it's the future I like to think about where it looks a bit more like the past where things are kind of less specific, a bit more general. I, I always call this approach the loose fitting shirt, you know, like the one size fits all kind of thing where like it may not be hyper customized for any one use or function, but conserve like pretty well for most functions, you know? And that's kind of an interesting way to think about buildings and, and society at large where we're just always marching forward and things are changing rapidly. And we, we kind of shift our priorities more quickly than the built environment can keep up to. And so it just makes sense to build adaptability and flexibility into these spaces and anticipation that the use you have for them today is likely not to be the, the use you'll need for them tomorrow, you know? And so I thought there's something really elegant about that strategy. And there's a great example. I always think of like the Hagia Sophia as, as an example of a, a large like building that could have been repurposed like countless times throughout history as like, like cathedrals and mosques and markets and things like that. It, it's kind of a nice thing to keep in the back of your head that if you just build something well and you get the, you know, the poetics of space right, that it can serve many people, many functions over time. Yeah, I would fully agree. I think just for listeners, um, there's a really 
reasonable article written in Forbes by John Kotzier uh, titled Nine Things We Lost When Google Cancelled Its Smart Cities Project in Toronto, which I think sort of lays out some of the um, perhaps slightly higher level uh, things, uh, somewhat a, a requiem. Um, in sort of coming to the end of, of that case study part, uh, what, what would you say to those people who are suspicious of big tech's motive in getting involved in the city-making business? Yeah, um, it's, it's a difficult one because I think for a lot of people, it sort of challenges convention. We're really used to companies kind of staying in their lane. Like if you're a printer and a copy company, that's what you do, you know? And I think in the digital age, we're seeing a lot more um, free flow between different sectors and different industries that are really data-driven. You know, there, there's this common phrase that you hear around the valley and it says the future of X has more to do with tech than with X. <laughs> and it's kind of an interesting model to think about. And so um, city building is such an important part of, of our lives and like urban productivity and GDP and like the economic centers of, of our world. And so it kind of makes sense that um, these information intensive industries would be gravitating towards this sort of space. Um, in terms of skepticism, I think it almost mirrors what we see in the digital world where it's all just based on, on privacy and trust. And that's something that we really need to underscore in both realms, the digital and the physical in cities and um, online. And so um, it's really just about navigating that relationship and having open and honest dialogue and developing partnerships and relationships that feel trustworthy and mutually beneficial for everyone. And so in, in many ways, it's not so different than uh, the city making isn't so different than what happens in the online world where it's a, it's a conversation that we need to mediate. Uh, and finally on that point, do, do you think it's likely we'll see a reboot of this initiative in some other location? Yeah, I, I can't really say. Um, there, there was, you know, ambitious talk of that when I was at Sidewalk Labs. I haven't been around um, for for a bit of time now, and so I can't really give you the, the latest, uh, you know, feeling on that. But um, yeah, I, I think there were a lot of good ideas, and then maybe it was the timing, maybe it was the location, maybe it was, you know, some of the features of the proposal that didn't resonate well. And I'm I'm hopeful that it can be you know, reconfigured and adapted and strengthened um, from this experience. And maybe some of these, these great ideas can find a home elsewhere. But maybe just to come back to your, your previous point, if I understood that correctly, there's a, is there a kind of inevitability about this? Um, you know, rightly or wrongly, big tech, let's just use that word. Um, you know, big tech's getting bigger, um, never more so than in the current crisis that we've all been um, experiencing. And, you know, construction is, and building and property is just this huge sector that is a kind of last frontier, if you like, that's been fairly resistant and in many ways immune to disruption. Is this just inevitable? And so maybe Toronto was not to be, but is this an inevitability? Or do you think that there's some other factor that we haven't thought about that's going to come between this? Yeah, I'm not sure I would ever call anything inevitable, but if you look at the general trends over the decades, you know, there's even in building management and in construction and building operation and leasing, like 
they're becoming much more data intensive exercises. You know, like you look at the realization of a high rise today and how much of that is all done digitally, you know, from the design to the manufacturing and ordering and logistics. And these things are all orchestrated using digital tools, you know, and architects and designers do that because it offers them benefit. The idea of like trying to build a, you know, 120 story high rise using uh, paper and pencil seems like unthinkable, right? So we do get benefit from the employment of these digital tools. Um, but then as such, that becomes the lingua franca of the industry. And so we start using digital tools for things that typically weren't digitized before. And then you kind of get this deep penetration of the digital into something that historically wasn't. And so in some ways, yeah, this is kind of the pattern we've seen in a lot of other sectors. And it, it kind of follows suit that the building and architecture and construction may uh, be very, very similar. Yeah, I, I suppose it's for me, uh, even of a slightly higher level than the digital tools themselves, it's more like the tectonic plates of the world economy and 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 how they're moving to one another and i've i've heard a reasonable reasonable amount of speculation in recent times about how uh you know big tech companies might move into spaces like health for example and we've seen that it's not it's not a it's not a speculation it's 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 true we, we know that they're moving into um, transportation and all of those sorts of things and i guess um it's, you know, I, I would agree that nothing's inevitable and 2020 is a great example of that, um, but that that construction is somehow going to be and building and the built environment is going to remain somewhat immune or resistant to these larger trends strikes me personally as unlikely. What do you think? Yeah, I think we see little, little bits of it. I, I think it's going to be maybe more of a grassroots bottom up sort of thing rather than the top down master plan city that really gets us there. Um, you see a lot of innovation in, like I, like I mentioned before, like in design tools or urban planning tools like Autodesk just made that big acquisition of uh, that um, Norwegian company the other day. And there's a lot in robotic construction, you know, there's a lot of like innovation and excitement around that there's more automation coming into the homes. There's a, a company I advise called Bumblebee Spaces that looks at what they call the fifth wall of real estate, which is kind of the smart robot that occupies the ceiling plane and deploys beds and storage and whatever you need. And so like, it's kind of coming at the industry from a number of angles, you know, and it does kind of make sense of this digitization is just getting deeper and deeper into the, into the trade space. Um, sort of moving now to wrap up, uh, Eric, I wanted to talk more about the future, um, the future of built environment trends. And historically, uh, and this is probably citing a, uh, I think it was a New York Times article that that started with the lines they promised us flying cars. But the historically, the 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 vision of the future of buildings and built environment has been highly technological, flying cars silent electrical uh, electric monorail carriages zipping around and hyperloops and holographic walls and all of these kinds of things that we typically think of as futuristic uh, i'm kind uh, keen to hear from you how you view this particularly because of your experience in so many different and very progressive r d organizations what what do you think the future can and should look like yeah it's a great question i think it's it's kind of fun because it's so open-ended like the future it's really ours to make, you know, it'll be exactly what we make of it, you know, 
And so it's just a matter of like gathering mind share and getting people excited and rallying support around one idea or another. And to me, that's really the important role that like art and fiction play in shaping what we think of when we think of the future. You know, you think of like authors like Margaret Atwood or Ursula Gwynn or Philip Pullman, Neil Stevenson. They all like provide like a really valuable framework um, for humans to kind of imagine what the future might be. They kind of provide this jumping off point for us to play out these future fantasies. And, and generally what we gravitate to building and making are influenced largely by these like alternate you know, realities or future possible universes that they've described in, in their literature and in their art. And so that, that's really compelling to me to think that art can play such a, a vital role in being critical about social discourse and being critical about like what we see in the world around us today and help paint uh, a picture of what the future might be if, if things changed. And so I, I'm really optimistic for that and kind of emboldened in the thought that it's sort of up to us to decide. Yeah, I like that agency view. Um, before we uh, wrap this up, Eric, I just really wanted to ask you, like I've asked uh, many people, if there's something about the building industry or even the built environment more generally that you wish people would pay more attention to or that you think will make a critical difference in the future of building? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I've uh, My background actually is in environmental design and sustainability. And in the course of my career, I kind of thought that, you know, sustainability was going to advance a lot more than it has in the last 20 years. <laughs> you know, not, not to be pessimistic about it, but some of the conversations I was having about like materials and, you know, thermal mass and envelope and tightness of buildings and all these things, there's still many conversations that are being had today. And so um, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly what, what we need to, to make that more present in, in people's minds. And in some ways, it could be a regulatory approach where governments seem to be a bit more strict about mandating the way buildings are delivered and operated. Um, I'm not sure exactly what, what the source needs to be, but um, that, that's one thing I wish people give a bit more attention to because buildings are kind of these massive factories kind of sitting all over the place, consuming tons of resources and producing tons of carbon. And um, it, it's sometimes they're kind of blend into the background because we're so focused on transportation industry, but we don't really see the, the third pillar of, of carbon in, in the buildings that we, we live in and, and occupy. And so um, that, that's one thing that I, I kind of would, would love people to think about a bit more critically and bring to the fore of their conversations about the built environment in cities. Excellent, Eric. I think that's a fantastic place to leave it for today. Uh, many thanks for your time. Um, we'll endeavor to get all of the notes and references that we've spoken about today uh, into the show notes. Uh, but for now, thanks very much, Eric. And thanks to our audience for listening. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun.